I think this is the welcome Lisa Sharon Harper to Geneva College this morning, formerly Sojourner's Chief Engagement Officer. Lisa Sharon Harper is a prolific speaker, writer, and activist. Ms. Harper is the author of several books, including the critically acclaimed, got one here, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, that's her most recent book, and also Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith in Politics. And these will be for sale uh, back at the table where Kathy Schlachter is sitting. Kathy, you want to wave your hand? There you go. Uh, they're usually $20, but they're $16 today, so we thank Lisa for that uh, discount. A columnist at Sojourners Magazine and the Christian Post, as well as an Auburn Theological Seminary Fellow, Ms. Harper is regularly featured on the Sojourners blog, in the Huffington Post, in the Washington Post, and Relevant Magazine. And in 2015, the Huffington Post recognized her as one of the 50 most powerful women religious leaders to celebrate on International Women's Day. Most recently, New York Magazine named her among six surprising champions of women from the 2016 election. Relevant Magazine recognized the very good gospel as one of six books that will change the way you see the world and named Ms. Harper as one of the seven leaders to follow. the kingdom of God, we often fail to actually describe what, what we see when we look around in the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God smell like? You know what I mean? You get me? You understand, right? Like, really, like, what is it like? Um, we talk a lot about getting our friends into the kingdom of God. We talk a lot about, um, about being a part of the, joining the kingdom of God. But today we're going to go a little bit deeper. I want to share with you basically what a journey that I've been on for the last 13 years, actually 14 years now, oh my goodness, 14 years. I took a pilgrimage about 14 years ago, 2003, and on this pilgrimage, we retraced two stories in American history that, uh, that really kind of showed you the most evil stuff that has happened on this land. Um, we got in a bus, I was with a college ministry, got in a bus and traveled over 10 states over the course of four weeks. And those four weeks, we were retracing first over the first two weeks, the Cherokee Trail of Tears. And then the second two weeks, the African experience in America from slavery through civil rights. The Cherokee Trail of Tears, both of these histories, by the way, are in my own family. According to oral history, my family walked the Trail of Tears. Um, both African-American and Cherokee together in my family. We escaped in Kentucky and had to hide out under assumed names for the rest of our lives, actually, for the rest of, yeah, until present. Um, the folks 
who are, you get, you get it, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> so um, we retraced the Trail of Tears, and at the end of that time, I, I became more familiar with my own ancestors. And then we retraced the African experience in America, and I knew, I knew that story very well. I knew about children anybody raise your hand right so most of us you know we like the kiddos but that's a classroom y'all that's not like you know well she had 17 but not because she wanted 17 children she had 17 children because she was most likely what they what they made to be a breeder people who were human beings who were forced to breed money for their masters basically what they were forced to do and through rape. So I got to the end of this journey and, and I was really struck by how silent my own understanding of the gospel was when I asked, what does it have to say to this? It, it had nothing to say. And you see, my understanding of the gospel was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and that you're sinful and therefore separated from God, but Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin, and therefore all you need to do is pray this little prayer at the back of the gold booklet. For me, that was the four spiritual laws in, in college. I knew that thing so far so well that I could literally quote it backwards and forwards and wrote jingles. <laughs> I wrote jingles about it because I was an I was a student leader in, in um, Campus Crusade. wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. Jesus died to your sin. All you need to do is pray this little prayer and you get to go to heaven. My question at the end of that summer was, would Leah receive that as good news? Would she be led to jump and shout? because of that news. And I had to admit the reality that the answer was
to go deep into the book of Genesis, and in particular Genesis 1 through 14, where I really, really focus the majority of my time um, on Genesis 1 through 3, which is really where we're going to focus most of our time today, this morning. So I have, I, you know, in, in the study found that over the course of all these years that there were really four words that for me unlocked the meaning of that of this text it's a it's a it's a really complicated text it's a but it's actually not it's poetry um, there's lots of theories about what it's supposed to be is it supposed to be science is it supposed to be history is it supposed to be well one thing we know is that science didn't exist back when this was written literally it just didn't exist so that's a modern age thing it's enlightenment era um, the people of that era did not think in the same way they did not they weren't concerned with the same things they were not really concerned quite honestly with the fact of how things happened they were concerned with the truth about their relationship and their relatedness with God and all the rest of creation so the question here is, what is the truth? And in order to communicate that, the writers actually wrote it, wrote this truth in Genesis 1 in particular, not the rest of it. There's other parts that are poetry, but most of it actually is story. But in Genesis 1, what you see is you actually see epic poetry. And one of the reasons we know that is because of the word tov that is used throughout the text. The word tav, which is actually the word good. You know how at the end of every day in the Genesis 1 um, uh, narrative, you actually hear it is good, it was good, it was good. Well, that, that word tav, good, is actually repeated seven times. And that, we know, that for the Hebrews, seven was the number for perfection. So you get to the end and you see that now it's not just tav, it's tav me'od. Tav me'od meaning very good. Well, that word tav, usually, it actually appears in the context, usually, of epic Hebrew, Hebraic poetry. So it's one of, the, one of the indicators that we know, well, this is, this is actually what this is supposed to be, which is the reason why I'm actually punching this. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because if we try to read this text and we think we understand it, because we have an understanding of the surface read, as in the, the world was made in seven days, and this is the order it was made in, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the point. And for me, that point was really unlocked by these four words. So let me just, we'll, go, we'll dive right in. The first word is that word tov, and actually it's, it's the phrase tov me'od. So at the end of the sixth day, the text reads, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So, tav me'od, very good. That word tav, according to the Hebrews, when they, when they thought of tav, they thought of it differently than the Greeks, which is where we get our understanding of goodness or perfection. You see, the Greeks understood goodness or perfection to exist inside the thing itself. So that this is a perfect lectern. You're sitting on perfect chairs. So they were concerned with the thing itself being perfect. But the Hebrews did not locate perfection in the thing. They located very goodness, which was the closest thing they had to the concept of, of perfection in Genesis 1, between things. Just consider that for a moment then if goodness is located between things, then it is relational. 
in nature. It is about the overwhelming wellness of the relatedness between things. Now, think about it this way. When God looked around at the end of that sixth day and said, this is very good, what God was actually saying was the relatedness between humanity and God was tov me'od. Oh, and by the way, that word me'od, it actually means powerful, forceful, vehement, abundant, overflowing, crazy, crazy, crazy good. So the relatedness between humanity and God was crazy good. The relatedness between men and women was crazy good. The relatedness between humanity and the rest of creation was crazy good. And the relatedness between all of creation and the way things worked, the systems that govern us, was crazy good. There was no cursing in Genesis 1. The way that it worked was all blessed all. Get it? So now let's flip back a little earlier in the same day, Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27, and we get to see that. Latin version of that, Imago Dei. You guys, anybody, raise your hand if you've heard Imago Dei. That's the thing that we usually talk about, but that's the Latin word, which is not in the text because it's not a Latin text, um, for the actual Hebrew word, Selem, T-S-E-L-E-M, right? So Selem. Selem is the Hebrew version of the Greek word icon. We know the word icon, right? Y'all know icon. Everybody knows icon. It's basically an image, right? So, so Salem means representative figure. That's what it means. Now, the thing about the Salem is that the Salem was, it was the thing that the king of a kingdom would place around that kingdom in different places in order to mark where that king rules. So, again, this is the same word as icon. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the temple when he is confronted by the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. When Jesus is in the temple and they come up to him and they go, yo, Jesus, you know, they're trying to trap him, right? You know, yo, Jesus, we got a question for you, you know? And Jesus says, okay, sure, bring it, you know? And so they come on and they're like, all right, so should we be paying taxes? Well, that's a really big issue back then. That was a huge controversy, right? So they're trying to, they're trying to get him to say, you know, it's like a political thing, um, trying to get him to, to slip up. Um, he says, anybody remember, what does he say? What does he say? Well, he said, show me a coin, right? Show me a coin. And then what does he say? Yes, whose face is on the coin? And then what do they say? Caesar. And then what does he say? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? So because Caesar's face is on the coin, Caesar's icon is on the coin, then the coin belongs to Caesar. And then what does he say? Anybody remember? but render unto God what is God's. So what is God's? 
We are. We are gods. We, we belong to God because the image of God is on us. Now, why would he say that to them, though? Why would he say, render, but render unto God what is God's? Well, largely because of the way they were governing. They were governing in a way that the Pharisees were saying to the people, in order to be seen as holy, in order to make it to heaven, in order to, to earn eternal life, you have to abide by the whole law. Now, they weren't just saying, it would have been one thing if they stopped with Moses' law or the, you know, the commands and ordinances, but they didn't, or the Levitical law. No, they said you have to abide by Roman law. In other words, the way that things work in Rome. And the way that things were working in Rome was that they were being taxed so much. that, And it was not even just the tax itself. The tax was actually not that bad. It was all the other taxes that were put on top of it and the way things worked. The, the Pharisees and Sadducees and this whole temple took its, its part. They took a little extra. The tax collector themselves took a little extra. So people were actually being taxed so much that you had deep, extreme poverty throughout, throughout Jerusalem and throughout the, the entire area, especially of northern Galilee, that whole area. That's why six years before Jesus was born, Six years, just six years before he was born, there was an attempted insurrection over Rome in that area. 2,000 men were crucified in one day in the northern Galilee area. In the very town where he grew up in Nazareth and in the surrounding area. And then in the following day, another general came through and began to crucify 500 men per day. After that, says Josephus, the Jewish historian. So that's the context. But give to God what is God's. They're crushing the image of God by their governance. Now, let's keep going. What we can also see about Salem is that in the ancient's worldview, only the royalty bore the image of God. So this is actually a monumental moment in human history. It is the first time in any civilization that anybody has declared that all humanity bears the image of God. Now, I think it's important that we understand the context of the writing of this text. So when I went back and I did that research, I found that there's several different theories about who wrote Genesis, right? Like, one of the theories says that Moses wrote Genesis, and the, well, the whole, all of Genesis, right? There's another theory that says that there's four separate writers of Genesis, four separate sets of writers, actually, and one of those sets is the, is the group that wrote Genesis 1. That, that group is, they say, a company of priests who were exiting the Babylonian exile. And what I want to posit to you is that no matter what you believe, whether it is Moses or it's the priests, exiting the Babylonian exile, we have a situation where the writer of Genesis 1 was oppressed. So you understand that the context, what were they thinking? In both cases, you had Moses, who had just exited 500 years of enslavement of his people. Or 
you have the Babylon, the priests who were exiting the Babylonian exile, who had just experienced 70 years or five generations of enslavement of their people. In Babylon, they were told, they were reared in order to believe that they were created by God, by the gods, to be a slave of the gods. That's, that was the worldview of the Babylonians. And certainly, if you are the booty of war, which is what they were, then you are not even really fully human. You're not even just a slave to the gods. You're a slave to us. So that, it is in the midst of exiting that exile. In other words, coming into their own rule. These priests were about to enter into the temple and begin their own rule. Or Moses was about to enter into the promised land as much as he understood, as much as he knew. And and actually have, have his own governance. It is in that context that they say, and let all humanity be made in the image of God. You see, they could have grabbed power for themselves. They could have reserved it for themselves in that moment. They could have said to themselves or, or declared, and let the, let the priests have the image of God as it was seen or understood in every civilization before, but they didn't. What did they do? They democratized power, threw it out to all humanity, so that every single human being bears the inherent dignity of a king or a queen. Think about that. And then, in, just in case they didn't fully get it, if people like, were a little bit stubborn or didn't really believe that, then they said, and let them have dominion. <laughs> okay? So if you don't really understand, let's just make it clear. And let them have dominion. Now, that word dominion has been sorely misunderstood. And so in a lot of ways, in some ways, erased from our vocabulary because we don't even want to deal with it. Some people have said dominion means to dominate, or they've taken it in that way. But the reality is, is that this context... The context actually tells us a lot about what dominion looks like. Dominion in this text is really about stewardship. It's the, it's the, it means literally to tread down. It's the word rada. That's the third word that I want to share with you today. So rada. It means to tread down. But, and so I can understand why they would think if, if it means to tread down that, well, it means to dominate. But that's not really the context. This is an agrarian society. This is the very beginning. This is the time when when vegetation is all over the place. I, I went to Bosnia back in 2004 on the second pilgrimage, actually, and we were driving up through the center of Bosnia, and there's this one main road that kind of goes from north to south the whole way through, and, and this, on this road, you can see, you can see, especially then, which was only 10 years after the Bosnian War, you can see the aftermath of people being taken away from their homes, right? The Serbs and the Serbian army, they actually made it, one of their tactical strategies to, quote, kill the homes of people. It wasn't just about hitting military tar targets in the same way that you would in a normal war. No. Instead, it was actually literally, they would sit across the street from somebody's house, anybody, your house, anybody's house, aim guns and cannons at the house and shoot the house so that it would, quote, die. So now as we're driving up the center of Bosnia, we can see these homes that literally are riddled with bullets, 
bullet fire. And then you would also see where bombs had come in on the roofs. And guess what is happening now? As we're driving, what we see is we see trees growing up through the center of the houses. Trees are now growing inside the house, taking over, because that's what happens when people are not there, humans are not there, to exercise dominion, to steward, to, to maintain the boundaries, to maintain the wellness of the relatedness between all of creation. So that's really more of what Rada means. It's really about stewarding. It's about maintaining the wellness of the relatedness. There's even a clearer picture of Rada um, in Genesis 2, which actually is funny because the word, again, the, the word dominion is not mentioned in the text, but you see it. You can see it in action. God takes the human and places the human in the middle of the garden and says, till and keep it. Well, that's a picture of dominion. That's a picture of Rada. But when you translate those words, Till and keep, do you know what they mean? They mean serve and protect. So God places the human in the middle of the garden and says, serve it. Protect it. That's what it looks like to exercise dominion. So we were created in the image of God and called to exercise stewardship of the land. There's, some, there's a few different implications of this. The first one of, of the whole thing, of all these three words, and then I'll get to the fourth later. The first one is that, one, very goodness is about the overwhelming wellness of all relatedness in humanity and in creation, all of the relationships in creation. Two, to be made human is to be made in the image of God. Can everybody agree with that? If you are human, then you are made in the image of God. Everybody, got it? Yeah. Three, if you are made in the image of God, then you are created with a divine call and with the capacity, all things being equal, to exercise dominion in the world, to steward the world, to exercise agency that serves and protects the world. Fourth implication, when we govern in a way that either diminishes, fails to recognize, limits, or crushes the capacity of any people or people group to exercise dominion, we are also limiting, diminishing, failing to recognize, even crushing the image of God on earth. Because these two things are inextricably linked in the text. You cannot take them apart. They're spoken in the same breath. So where do we go from here? You see, the thing is, from this point, now we have Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we see the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's another, it's actually a story now. It's not epic poem. It's very, it's much more intimate. The order of creation is different. So be, many people actually believe it's a different, actual different account of creation. And in this account, you have God in the muck. You have God with God's hands dirty, right? And in this account, you have these two trees. 
And one of them is that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, in, and that's the thing. This tree, it's not some magical tree, I don't believe. I don't believe it's like, you know, in the Wizard of Oz when you throw water on the witch. And like, you know, God, God actually gives a command on this tree. Don't eat of it or you'll die. I don't think it's like that moment when the witch says, I'm melting, I'm melting. I don't think it's like that. I, I think rather the only thing that distinguishes this tree in the entire garden is the reality that a command is attached to it. I think that it's the only place in paradise where we are confronted with the fact that we still have need, need of God, or confronted with the question of whether or not we want God, whether or not we trust God, God's word, God's command, whether or not we're going to choose God's way. And quite honestly, I think it's, it's that question, it's that choice, it's that opportunity to trust that actually makes us, makes it possible for us to have love relationship with God because love requires trust. Love requires choice. But what we see is we see humanity. We see these, these first humans. We see them make a choice that is away from God, but not to trust God's way to peace, wholeness, fulfillment. And instead, in Genesis 3, when the serpent sidles up and, and tricks them, says, hey, you know, the old man doesn't know what he's talking about, you know. They choose their own way. And what happens? What happens is, because God is the author of shalom, shalom is broken because they've chosen their own way and they get what, what they can get, all that they can get, which is broken shalom. But they choose their own way to peace. And one by one, after that in Genesis 3, you see each of the relationships that God created and called very good just a, a chapter and a verse ago, they all fall down. The first to go is our relatedness with God, not choosing God's way. The second is our relationship with self. Shame enters the world on that day, running and hiding, covering ourselves. The third to go is our relationship between men and women. That goes. The blame game starts that day. And then it's the relatedness between humanity and the rest of creation. It's the first time in a text you see an animal snipe at a human being. When the writers predict that a serpent will snip at the heels of a woman and a woman will stamp the head of the serpent, first time that we see violence like that in the text. And then we have to beat the earth to get anything out of it. And then God death enters the world when God rips one of God's own creation and first blood is spilled on that day in order to gut it and clothe us in order to cover over our shame. And then we are driven from the garden. I don't know about you, but I would have to be driven from the place where all relatedness was tov me'od to. And it doesn't end there. In the next chapter, you see brother rise up against brother and the break in families happens with Cain and Abel. And in the same chapter, chapter 4, you see Lamech. Now we have Lamech with his two wives. I mean, just a few chapters ago, we had, we had they were naked and unashamed and clinging to each other. But now Lamech is with his two wives. And do you know what their names are when you translate them in the text? Shadow and adornment. Ladies, it starts here. 
men, it starts here. A few chapters later, you get the confusion of languages at the Tower of Babel, which leads to ethnic enmity. And just two chapters after that, in chapter 14, you get the first mention in the whole Bible of the word war. And it comes in the same breath as the first mention of the word king. And it comes in the context of colonization, of one king trying to exact his will over several other kings. And that's where you get war. Domination brings war. You see, governance, I believe that in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, I believe that the concern of the writers was on how we were going to govern after having been oppressed for so long. And we get to see in its purest form in Genesis 1 what God's governance looks like. What does it look like when God governs the world? Well, we see it when God creates the world. We see that all of the relationships in creation are tov me'od. We see that the image of God is protected and served. We see that the rest of creation is protected and served. And we actually see a really clear example of what God's kind of governance looks like, even in like real time, and not just Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, but we see it actually when they enter into the promised land. We see God set up God's government. Really, literally, God was their king. God was the person that they went to. God was the establisher of the law. And what we see when we see God governing in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus is we actually, in Numbers, we see provision for the least. And we see an equaling of the playing field in terms of human hierarchy. Because you see, one of the things that when the governance of people versus the governance of God, we see in the governance of people, we see the creation of all kinds of ways to create human hierarchy. We see it in the creation of the construct of race, we see it in the creation of constructs of gender and gender dominance and gender roles. We see it in the constructs of, of class. We see it in all kinds. We see it, we see it in, the, in the superior supremacy of different religions, depending on what nation you live in. If you are in a Muslim nation, that's the supreme religion. If you're in a Christian nation, that's the supreme religion, or that's the supreme people who get to rule. But what do we know from the text? We know from the text that all humanity was created to exercise dominion in the world. So we have been living in a lie. We've been living a lie when we live according to the hierarchies of human value and belonging. But those hierarchies are diminished. They are destroyed when God governs. Because what you see when God governs, and I'm really going to focus on three things in particular, and then we'll wrap up. When we see when God governs, especially in this, in, in the establishment of the king of the um, nation of Israel, is we see three pillars that I want to call our attention to. One is the Sabbath. Two is the sabbatical year, and three is the year of jubilee. You see, the Sabbath 
the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee all work to create a, a, a leveling of the playing field, a level, a, mechanisms and structures and systems that are put in place in order to ensure that if people fall into hard times at different times, there will never be a family that has to live as less than human in perpetuity. And the Sabbath is once a week, right? So the Sabbath is every Saturday we're going to get together and we're going to worship in every single person, everyone in the nation of Israel, even the cattle, even the oxen, are all worthy of rest. You know, we think of the Ten Commandments, the, you know, the Big Ten, we think of them as like ten good ideas, <laughs> right? We don't really think of them as law, but they were law to them. It was law, like law. And the thing is, is that these, this law that was established, we, we kind of think of it like, you know, do this, you'll do well. If you don't do this, you, you won't do well. But for them, it was much more like it, much more, it, it functioned more like a bill of rights. Now, they didn't think in terms of rights. They didn't have that construct in their mind. But you can infer from the call for all Israelites to exercise the Sabbath that all Israelites have the right to exercise the Sabbath. For the call for all Israelites, do not commit murder. For all Israelites, you have the right not to be murdered. Can we agree on that? Right? Yeah. <laughs> do not steal. You have the right not to be stolen from. Is that right? Right? So... When you set up constructs that actually bifurcate who gets to Sabbath, you're creating a dual citizenship society. Some who are covered, some who are protected by that Bill of Rights, by the Big Ten, and others who are not. That's why I believe in Nehemiah, when he says, don't break the Sabbath, that's what got us into this situation in the first place, where the wall is down. That's why he gets, he gets, he is so emphatic about this, that he gets everybody to promise they will never break the Sabbath again. Well, what was that about? Was that about just not like being holy and like not like, being impure by breaking? No, it was because they, they caused merchants to set up outside of the, of the temple as they were going in and as they were coming out. What did that mean? The merchants were usually immigrants. The merchants were usually working class. The merchants were usually poor. Well, it meant that they were setting up a situation where those merchants were being told, God, God wants to be with us. God, God cares about relationship with us. You, not so much. It's a lie. It's a spiritual lie. And then you have the sabbatical year, which is totally radical. In the sabbatical year, you actually see in the text, in, uh, in Le Leviticus 25, you see that for the sabbatical year, people are, their debts are forgiven and actually given a whole year of rest, right? So you have debts are forgiven and like the land gets to rest for a year. Nobody can actually work for a whole year. Can you imagine the impact on an economy if that was going to take place? If what would happen, I'm not advocating this, although I do think it would be really cool, but I'm not saying we need to do this, but what would be the impact if we suddenly had a law in the United States that every seven years, everybody had to take the whole year off. 
What would be the impact of that? Think about that. What would that do to the capacity of corporations to build empires? Think about it. I mean, really. What would that do to the capacity of, of people to, to exact free labor from people over a large amounts of time or multiple generations or, or cheap labor? What would that do if even those people got the whole year off? And then every seven times seven years, you have, you have the year of Jubilee, which is every 49 years or 50, depending on how you count it. But every 49 to 50 years, you have the freeing of people, or the freeing of people who were indentured in order to pay off debt. They're set free. Their debt is forgiven. And they get their land back. In an agrarian society, land is everything. If in the course of the last 50 years, 49 years, you made bad decisions that led to your home being taken because of debt, every 49, 50 years, there's a reset, an economic reset button. Why would God do that in God's governance? I believe it's because of this. There is no faster or surer way to crush the image of God on earth than through poverty and oppression. So when God governs, God protects and serves the image of God on earth. Now I'll close with this. Consider this. The ancients saw the Salem of the king as a marker of where that king ruled. Where the image of that king flourished, it was an indicator that that kingdom was flourishing. Where you saw those images being crushed or twisted or toppled over, it was an indicator that there was war against that king happening, either in that kingdom or from another kingdom coming in. So what if, when we govern in a way that limits, diminishes, fails to recognize, or crushes the image of God within our jurisdictions, what if, when we govern that way, we are actually waging war against the kingdom of God. What would it take for us to lay down our arms against God? What would it take for us to renounce the lie of human hierarchy? The political constructs that construct human hierarchy. the things that break the world. What would it look like? I posit to you that it would look a lot more like the kingdom of God. Amen. <laughs>